Welcome to A Clinical Breath, respiratory insights from industry leaders. A Clinical Breath provides the community with the latest respiratory developments, trends, and expertise, all aimed at improving patient outcomes. Today's episode is brought to you by Monaghan Medical Corporation. Monaghan means it matters. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Opinions are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Monaghan Medical Corporation. Welcome to A Clinical Breath, Respiratory Care Insights from Industry Leaders. Today, we have Gary Kaufman talking to us, and what we're going to talk about is the hierarchy of evidence in respiratory care. Gary, we're inundated with uh, a number of things that uh, are given to us to evaluate products, research, and so on. Perhaps you can highlight a little bit about how we should approach this. If we were trained as statisticians, we wouldn't be having this conversation because we would know what a simple observational study is worth versus an N1 randomized trial. But we're not. So what we have to rely on is asking the experts, how do we as respiratory therapists, whether it's evaluating a product or a sales sheet or a presentation or a journal article? So what I'll suggest first is the definition we need to think about is why do we have a hierarchy of evidence? And it really allows us to assess the strength upon which we make our decisions. Of those seven categories, I like to think of it as really three general areas, the lower, middle, and high. So if we look at the lowest level of evidence, that's the simple clinical observation. So I get a product, I give a breathing treatment to a patient, and Mr. Smith improves. Now, how do I know that Mr. Smith improves? How do I document? How do I assess? It could be breath sounds, sputum production, maybe their SpO2 increases, or maybe they just look better at the end of the breathing treatment. Those are all valid process measures, even at that simple, single clinical observation. But we've got to pause. Does that mean that that intervention, whatever it is, therapeutic, diagnostic, life-saving, does that mean that you can say that treatment, that intervention, will work on Mrs. Smith, Mr. Jones, no. And a lot of times we do that. As therapists, we jump on that new device or we look at that sales sheet of the promise of better better outcomes and we don't have the data to support it. Now, somewhere in that middle of that category, rather than a single observational uh, evaluation of, of the patient's clinical response to that intervention, We've got not one, not dozens, but maybe a hundred patients who were given an intervention. And I used a study published a couple years ago. And these were COPD patients that had higher than expected unplanned readmissions, 30-day readmissions. They were looked at by age, premorbid condition, comorbidities, MCCs, CCs. Nothing seemed to fit. Nothing seemed to distinguish why this one particular cohort had much higher unplanned readmissions, in some cases five to six to eight times. One factor was the driving factor. Let's just say about 100 patients. Over half of those patients had a peak inspiratory flow rate less than what was considered uh, optimal, 60 liters per minute. Now, I might add most of us use 40 liters a minute, but this research used 60. 
So for those 60 patients, since they could not inhale fast enough to disaggregate the particles in the DPI inhalers, they would not get any benefit from the prescribed device. They were given another intervention, compressor nebulizer. What was the outcome? Length of stay, cost per case, readmission, ED visits. They improved. Now, this is that middle level of evidence. Does that mean that you can take that particular intervention, that diagnostic tool, and say that works for the universe of all patients with asthma, pneumonia, cystic fibrosis, bronchiectasis, COPD? The answer is no, but it's rather compelling for that cohort of COPD patients. And I think it's important for us to know that most medicine is not validated at that end of one randomized control process. But let's talk about what that is. Equally matched groups with age, premorbid condition, etc. One would be the control, one would be the intervention group. That works fine for the example I gave previously. Uh, a lot of pharmacological studies are done that way. But we wouldn't do that with mechanical ventilation because it would be a breach of eth- our ethics. Knowing that 100 patients, the, every other one gets a ventilator or gets not a ventilator would be unethical. Mm-hmm. So we need to think about that just because the science is not validated at that highest level doesn't mean it's not effective. As a colleague said, you can never say it's causative. You can say there's positive correlation with it. So it's not that it doesn't work. We just can't say that it does. So this seems so complex and so hard to understand. How would a respiratory therapist figure this out? The easiest way is to read an article that makes it very simple or take a look at that chart, those levels. There are three things we need to do. One, we need to be intelligence consumers of what we read. So if we read Respiratory Care, the Blue Journal, uh, JAMA, you name it, we have greater faith, better better confidence in that because it's a peer-reviewed journal. It has an editorial board and there are a number of reviewers that kind of sort out, is it at that lower level or the middle or higher level? So seeking the journal that's most credible, that uses Index Medicus and so on, is more credible than just something that uh, everyone gets in the mail? <laughs> yes. The, the RAG journals are not peer-reviewed uh, journals. I tell a personal story. A sales rep came in and had a new intervention, and I said, I'd like to see the scientific evidence supporting that. It's a uh, nice, nice individual. And he handed me the shiny sales sheet. It was pretty. It had colors and had statistics. But when you flipped it over and you looked at the bottom line, it was nine patients who were given the intervention. So the caution for respiratory therapists, and certainly entire uh, healthcare field, is to look at the fine print. If it's a peer-reviewed journal, it does not mean that errors don't occur. We've seen uh, that in virtually all the journals but you certainly have a higher level of confidence. If it's just a shiny sales sheet that says this product is better because of, see what follows of. Is it nine? Is it an opinion? Is it a single observation? And what is it compared against? Then we have more confidence in our clinical decision-making. Quite often, 
you see things used or terms used like high efficiency. Does that have any merit in the medical literature or is that just something that is put on a uh, marketing sell sheet? It, it can or it could not. It's like organic. What percent of organic or high efficiency car is it 35 miles to the gallon? In respiratory medicine, we need to look at the definition of high efficiency. Is high efficiency using a nebulizer, does that mean that you can drain the uh, solution in one minute versus three minutes? Does efficiency equal effectiveness? And the answer is it could, but it may not. We've got to look at the entire equation, which looks at effectiveness. So if using a nebulizer as an example, if it drains that nebulizer in five minutes, one could say, well, it's more efficient than a 15-minute nebulizer. But we've got to look at what is the mass mean aerosol diameter? What percent of particles are in that two to five micron range? Is it nothing more than an atomizer that's quick to empty? Or is it efficient and also effective? And a lot of times we don't take the full formula. And for our patient's sakes, we really need to do that. Efficacy plus efficiency will provide the value. So it's fair to say that we have to continually question all of the evidence that we look at in terms of trying to evaluate uh, something that may be new. Could you leave us with maybe one or two pearls for uh, the clinicians that uh, they should use in trying to get through some of this uh, information in a, in a logical manner? First, I would say, look at the level of science what level in that hierarchy are you confident to make a decision? Is it at the single observation? Not much confidence. Is that middle level? I'm more confident. Secondly, we need to be able to look at literature, to look at presentations at a seminar, to look at what we hear on a podcast. What is behind that? Is it science? Does it address efficacy and efficiency. Colleague and I use a formula that's not really an equation, and that is the value is the benefit with its attendant cost. Value is not what it costs for the intervention piece of equipment. Value is the clinical benefit that ensues and the longitudinal cost. Not using that formula is not acting as a scientist and a respiratory therapist. Thank you, Gary. This has been really interesting to kind of dig into some of this information that we, uh, we see every day. Hopefully, uh, we can all learn something from this. And uh, when, when we move forward, we can uh, do so with uh, some greater insight. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to A Clinical Breath, respiratory insights from industry leaders. Brought to you by Monaghan Medical Corporation. Monaghan means it matters. Thanks for listening and tune in again for more respiratory-related topics.